Thank you, Byron. Thank you, Helen and Heather. Uh, thank you all for being here. We're going to have some time for some questions. Um, if you've still got questions left after Byron's comprehensive presentation, uh, but I'm sure there are some questions. So, just wondering your thoughts on population. I think global population is like one percent increase every year or something like that. It's like ninety million people. Yeah, seven point seven billion currently. Um, and of those 7.7 .7 billion, the wealthiest 7% produce roughly 50% of all carbon emissions. The poorest 50% produce around 7%. And so climate change is uh, not a problem of population so much as consumption. Um, so there, there is a complex debate to be had uh, around uh, population, um, but if for those who are most concerned about it, the best ways of addressing it are actually things we ought to be doing anyway. Uh, empowering women, uh, opening up economic opportunities um, and education to women, uh, giving good access to family planning um, uh, and addressing infant mortality. Um, and as you do that, uh, countries go through a demographic transition where they shift from high birth rates and high infant mortality rates to high birth rates and low infant mortality rates, which is when the population really rapidly grows, to low birth rates and low infant mortality rates. Uh, and so the rate of growth has actually been dropping very significantly um, over the last few decades, and it was actually four decades ago that the fastest rate of growth was. Uh, so in terms of the climate debate specifically, um, it's, it's actually the emissions in the next couple of decades that really, really matter. It's about changing our energy systems and our cultural systems and our political systems um, uh, in, in the short to medium term, not the long-term question um, about providing for eight, nine, 10 billion people, though that is its own question. Um, <clears throat> in short, if you focus on population in this question, you end up blaming uh, people of color in Africa rather than the real culprits who are the wealthy largely white people um, who have caused and continue to drive the problem. Um, I just wondered what you see the role of the church um, as in the divestment movement globally. Excellent question. Yes, I had a whole paragraph on divestment and skipped it because I was already going way over time. Um, the divestment movement started six years ago, now has over a thousand institutional um, contributors who collectively control over $11 trillion uh, Australian <coughs> um, and it's actually a really important part of just shifting the political winds about what is thinkable and acceptable and normal uh, and sending the message that if it is wrong to wreck the habitability of the planet then it's wrong to profit from that wreckage um, and so churches were some of the first to divest um, and churches continue to join that divestment movement even just today I saw there was another um, uh, group in, I can't remember which part it was, one part of the US who just announced that they are divesting as well. And so it's part of the church um, highlighting for broader society, joining with other parts of civil society in saying that uh, just as it's wrong to profit from the destruction of human lives through um, investing in, you know, the expansion of the arms industry or just as it's wrong to profit from the destruction of human lives by profiting from tobacco, it's also wrong to profit here. Um, and that, that helps to make it harder for fossil fuel companies to 
um, dominate the political sphere so completely as they currently do. The other um, aspect that seems to be completely unexamined uh, is the matter of uh, economic growth, which is universally um, regarded as a good. Um, in fact, it's axiomatic that if a, an economy is not growing, then it is uh, somehow in deep trouble. Is there anything anybody can do about that? Because it is so such an ingrained assumption that nobody even bothers to question it. Yeah, this is one of those deep cultural narratives that get challenged by climate change and other ecological limits that we face. Um, and, you know, it's often said that the only people who believe in uh, endless growth are economists and cancer cells. Um, uh, growth is a good thing for, I, I want my six-year-old to keep growing, but if he doesn't reach a point at which he stops growing, something will have gone horribly, horribly wrong. Mm. Um, and it's actually the same, that, that a lot of the early economists who set a lot of our, our trajectory, you know, Adam Smith um, uh, explicitly wrote about there, there needs to be an end to growth, um, that we live on a finite planet, and so the material economy cannot keep consuming more and more, or we consume our own future. So that is, that is one of the deepest of those narratives, the cultural narratives that's threatened. Um, and it's particularly the powerful who are threatened by that, because the narrative of economic growth actually underpins our ignoring the issue of distribution and distributive justice. Because um, we can keep on deferring the question of how to share the resources of the earth if we can say it'll just endlessly keep growing and so every, you know, the rising tide will lift all boats. But I think we need to uh, confront um, the question of distribution at the same time as we uh, really critically question that narrative of growth. The latest IPCC report outlines at like a 10 to 12 year period before, like that's the end of, that's the, end of the tracks. Um, so part A is, can you unpack that for the numpties like me in the room? Or if I'm the only numpty, please I'm sure unpack not. that for me. Um, but then is it, is, it, is it literally just ignorance and money and power that keep people from actually giving a damn about that? Okay, uh, two questions. The first one, yeah, it's sorry, probably it's a bit- two questions. No, no that's right. Um, uh, so the 12 or now 11, or sometimes rounded down to 10 years to do something um, is, is kind of a, a headline slogan that activist groups use as a summary of what was already a summary um, of a complex IPCC report. It's not incorrect, but it is summarizing and so things are lost. Um, so in my uh, uh, presentation, I spoke about uh, the UN recommendation that if we want to have a, um, a shot at keeping uh, global temperature rises below 1.5 degrees, which is the more ambitious level of um, uh, goal you know, agreed at Paris, um, to do that, global emissions need to drop by 50% by 2030. Um, and so part of the point of saying we have 12 or now 11 years to uh, achieve that is to say that's a very rapid decarbonisation. A lot needs to happen in those 10 years. It's not as though it needs to stop there because we actually need to get to zero, which could potentially be even harder um, in the next decade or two. Um, but it's to say we can't just keep on deferring. For a long time, 
governments were speaking about targets that were 2100 or even 2050. And it's a way of just sort of engaging in uh, implicit denial because it just pushes it onto, well, we're gonna deal with that later. Um, you know, it's, it's like a, we'll do our homework the night before, you know, we'll, we'll get to a few years out and then we'll cut it. But of course, it's actually cumulative emissions that matter. And the longer that we have delayed, the harder that task gets, the more unforgiving those numbers become. Um, so can we actually decarbonize that quickly? That remains to be seen. Um, but if we want to uh, match our actions to the words that the global community have said, that's what's necessary. Second part of the question, um, is it just ignorance and money and power? Um, uh, I, I would remove the just there, those are all very powerful forces, uh, particularly ignorance, um, uh, but the others as well. Um, though I would tie all three of those to the account I was giving very briefly at the end there, um, and that sometimes I sketch out in more detail about the narratives that we live by, that there are these fundamental stories like the, the narrative of growth um, that really have shaped not just our personal lives, but our, our shared sense of the world as a society and the institutions that run the world um, and the power structures that exist in the world um, draw upon and are built from these narratives. And so if, if you start to question those deep narratives, uh, I mean, that's what a revolution is. It's, it's the shifting of one set of fundamental narratives for another. Um, and there are different kinds of revolution. There are violent and peaceful revolutions and there are rapid and slower revolutions. Um, but, you know, the Industrial Revolution was a shifting from one set of narratives to another. Um, and, and that's the kind of shift that we need. Um, my question is around what scientists and researchers can do, because mm -hmm. I'm in research. Great. Um, and I'm in public health, and one of the issues that public health is facing at the moment is um, vaccine refusal, as some people would know. Um, despite vaccines being extremely well established as one of the best public health interventions ever. Yep. Um, and part of this is, is kind of related to this kind of, I guess, loss of trust in experts and in mm -hmm. science and this growth of conspiracy theories about scientists who are usually quite poor profiting from commercial interests, nebulous commercial interests. Um, and I think in some ways similar issues apply here. And I'm just wondering... At times I feel quite helpless because I feel like the traditional ways that scientists communicate are not being trusted anymore. And what do you think that scientists can do um, so that their voices are heard and so that the public comes to trust what they're saying again? Mm. Uh, you know, that's a talk that, uh, that's a question that, you know, again, probably deserves its a whole talk to itself. but. Um, uh, I think part of the broader context is not just a loss of trust in science, but as you say, more broadly in expertise, um, which relates to a loss of trust in cultural elites um, and the political and intellectual ruling classes. Um, I think part of that loss of trust is because the people who we thought were leading us are leading us off a cliff, not just with climate, but in other ways too. There's been a deep shaking of confidence that governments and corporations um, uh, and scientific institutions are on our side. Um, and so at one level, uh, you can fight against that as an individual scientist, but you're, you're fighting against a cultural tide that's happening there. Um, uh, so I think it is still worth fighting for, and I very much value 
scientific research and scientific institutions, and you know there are other scientists in the room. Um, uh, so part of it is just acknowledging that that, that is a battle against a against the current flow. Um, what can actually be done? Um, uh, I think again, uh, building communities of mutual care and respect at, at every level, from the local level of a church, you know, up to um, uh, political leadership of a nation, um, is what's required to restore trust in social orders. So, in a sense, ultimately, what's required is a um, fresh leadership that is clearly acting not in the interests of just preserving the institution or preserving its own power, but acting in the interests of the vulnerable and of the common good. That's what earns trust. Um, I've got a question for you, Byron, and probably for Helen as well, if Helen will take a question. Um, I think part of my problem with the whole climate change thing has been it's a lot of science, a lot of head, a lot of politics. Uh, and so my question is, what role can the arts play um, in this conversation? And particularly as Christians, where we talk about community and whether that's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples being included in the climate community or creation care community and the arts, we have access as Christians to both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Christian leaders as well as um, amazing, incredible artists. Uh, so with that thought, what role can the arts play or how do we include the arts? I think that's a great question for, for Helen. That would go in. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess for me, the arts tap into what Byron's been saying about narrative. So, um, what, like the the arts can often tell us what we value as a culture, and so we're actually when we when we give our artists platform, they're culture shapers. So, so I think um, there's an element to to make sure that the artists with good values are out there getting their songs heard in their stuff seen so that people are actually impacted by that um, and I think uh, yeah there's only so much information will change people's minds about something I think um, we've got to have good storytellers out there in the public um, yeah singing songs telling stories that are going to capture people's hearts and, and help people to care because there's only so much that um, kind of engaging with people at a head level will have an impact um, but yeah the, I mean the other aspect of what Brooke just said is is um, listening to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and Indigenous cultures who have a better understanding of how we should be connected to, um, to creation and, uh, and that's an embodied thing, not just a, you know, an, an idea. Um. Yeah, no, I, I think that was, that was an excellent answer. And if I'd, I'd only tie it actually back to the science question, and to the politics in saying what, what I think unites those three fields is truth-telling. That it's actually people who speak and live the truth. Um, you know, I think about uh, Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish uh, schoolgirl who has started a movement of 1.4 million people in 2,000 cities and uh, you know, 100-plus countries um, of young people striking for climate. And, Part of her power is that she just speaks the truth bluntly and then is willing to 
live in a way that um, is costly, um, but it aligns with that truth. Um, and that's what we need artists who can do creatively, it's what we need, need to do scientists who can do really rigorously, um, and, and you know, I think that that sort of unites these different um, aspects of, of our uh, shared life. Probably have time for two more questions. Um, Byron, it seems to me that um, we're going to have revolutions sooner or later. Um, either when, uh, you know, 2050, when heaps of the world's population is dead and um, we just rise up and overthrow because um, there's nothing else to do to survive. Uh, how do you think Christians and churches should react to make sure that it's a peaceful revolution rather than a violent revolution? Yeah, I mean, there's a famous quote from, uh, it's JFK, isn't it, I think? Um, uh, that is John F. Kennedy, the US president. Uh, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable, um, or words to that effect. Uh, and I, I suspect part of it is the truth-telling, the story-living, and the nurturing communities of care, because uh, part of the difference between seeking change violently and seeking it non-violently is whether or not you, you believe in the power of persuasion. Um, that is, there's coercion and there's persuasion. Um, and if you're seeking change, that's really the difference between violence and non-violence. Um, and to believe in persuasion is to believe in shared humanity, is to believe in truth and the, the ability of truth to change people. Um, and it's to uh, believe in relationship um, rather than dominance. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that there is a, you know, simple solution there. And there's a sense in which we're already seeing the breakdown of the social order, you know, in places like Syria um, or North Korea or Somalia, um, you know, that, that uh, or Yemen, um, you know, and there, there are climate components to a number of those conflicts. Um, uh, so it's not as though this is just a, a, a future thing. Um, and in fact, we're also seeing, you know, the breakdown of social order, uh, you know, uh, one, one tweet at a time in the US um, or, or one failed uh, House of Commons vote at a time in the UK, um, you know, um, that uh, change of one kind or another is, is ha already happening around us. So it's not simply a one day a change will come, but I think things are already changing and how will we contribute to that being faster and more peaceful than it might otherwise be. Yeah, how, how do we do that? I think part of my answer is um, that will look different for each of us. 
Um, so I don't think that there is a one size fits all answer here. But in your own context, wherever the Lord has placed you, whatever your hand uh, finds to do, do it well, with respect, with integrity and honesty, or with urgency and patience. Um, uh, trusting ultimately that, um, you know, in, in the footsteps of Christ, uh, as John Howard Yoda says, the relationship between uh, Christian faithfulness and outcome is a relationship between cross and resurrection. That is, it's not up to us to ensure by force the correct outcome of our efforts, but we do what is right and what is just and what is true, uh, what is beautiful, what is generous, um, and, and trust that even if that leads to our crucifixion, we follow a God who can raise the dead. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Byron, for sharing with us tonight. Uh, thank you, Helen Wright. Um, don't forget to take Helen's little um, card with the way to get her music. Uh, thank you to all of you. There's many of you in the room um, uh, who are working in this space and uh, trying to advocate in this space, and so we thank you for your work as well. Uh, thank you for being part of Peace Talks tonight. Uh, please come and join us um, for a drink and uh, tea and supper. Um, Helen, could you just press the next button? Um, don't forget our next Peace Talks on the 11th of April and then the 25th of May and then our June one to be um, announced soon. Uh, Byron's uh, talk tonight will go up on the website and we'll post that on Facebook as well. So please share that around um, to your communities and networks. Uh, please help us spread the word about Peace Talks and encourage your friends and community to come along uh, and be part of having deeper conversation about uh, issues that really matter. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I just encourage uh, everyone to do that. Thank you all for coming. Um, please come and share community with us uh, outside and, uh, yeah, hope to see you uh, next time. And thank you again, Byron and Helen. And Heather. <laughs>